Nobel Prize winners are some of the most honoured individuals on earth, but it's been said that in the case of medicine and physiology, it's more helpful to cultivate a quiet career in the backwaters of microbiology or compose an indigestible work of literature than to swan about on red carpets and behave like a celebrity. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr Mary Luchaz, and joining me today is Nobel Laureate and Gastroenterologist Professor Barry Marshall who with his co-worker Robin Warren in 2005 received the Nobel Prize for Medicine. Welcome Barry and thanks for joining us. Thank you Mary. So uh, how did an Australian from a mining town in Western Australia end up discovering Helicobacter and winning the Nobel Prize? Uh, Obviously there are a lot of lucky connections. So I was interested in in medicine and science from way back and then went into internal medicine because I could see that there was a very difficult and challenging area of medicine. I even contemplated difficult specialties such as geriatrics where all the patients have four or five different diseases at once. So it was like a detective story or medical CSI trying to track down the cause of disease. So I was interested in that, but I only became interested in medical research after meeting Dr. Warren and, and having him show me these viral bacteria that he'd seen on gastric biopsies. So as a pathologist, he didn't see the patients. So it was great to have this connection between me in the clinic, talking to the patients, examining them, getting their histories, doing the endoscopy, and then Dr. Warren carefully studying the biopsies and saying, this one's normal, this one's not. So that's that's how it developed. You're supposed to do a clinical research project when you're in your physician training in Australia, and I did different ones each year. So I actually had a lot of other careers before I got into the helicobacter and the gastroenterology part of it. So it's just that I always loved any kind of new thing in medicine. So Alfred Noble invented dynamite. Do you think your experimentation as a kid with explosives influenced your desire to win a Nobel Prize? Well, maybe it did. Maybe I always liked to live a bit dangerously. I was pretty conservative during my teenage and school years. But once I got home on the weekends and got a bit bored, I could usually find some exciting science project to do. So exploding things was the reason I wanted to do chemistry and giving electric shocks to the local kids down the street was one of the amusements that I used to do when I was a few years before that with telephone generators. I'm sure everybody else my age has tried to do that, got shocks off telephones and things. Cetylene torches and, and cannons, things like that. Well, I had two other brothers, so we had, we had to keep ourselves amused in the long holidays before we had TV sets. When the medical community accepted that Helicobacter was the cause of peptic ulcer disease, I think that was around 1990, why did it take so long for you to win the prize? The discovery has to be repeated with the same results in a few different countries and then it has to catch on and so that you can see that that's getting into the 90s and then there was a consensus conference in the US at NIH in 2003 or 2004. The problem then was that you didn't actually have an approved treatment for helicobacter in the US. Some of the studies that have been done outside the US were using non-approved drugs. So it was a bit of a dilemma for the FDA and the NIH doctors to publicize this too much because then if the patient came wanting the treatment there was nothing out there that they could easily give. So it took a couple more years and really I have to say that although the US system is rather conservative because it sort of depends on the FDA stamping new treatments etc. When the approval does come across and the announcement goes out that this is the new treatment for peptic ulcer, things dramatically change in the US and then everyone else in the round, in the world that's been hesitating will say, oh, it's approved by the FDA, they've got a recommendation, 
it must be true, and then the whole world switches over. So that happened probably about 1996. And at that point, uh, Dr. Warren and I said, well, you know, our work is essentially done. There are plenty of other people interested in helicobacter. We can take a bit of a rest at that time. So probably at that point, people said, it's maybe going to win the Nobel Prize. The thing that strengthened it then was the increasing evidence that helicobacter was a cause of stomach cancer, and that started coming out of Japan. So the cancer people also said, well, this is an important cause of cancer. This is interesting, inflammation causing cancer. So that came out. Uh, treatments became available. And so then it, it became more and more popular. And people used to say, well, when are you going to win the Nobel Prize? I said, well, eventually someone on the committee is going to have an ulcer and they'll take our treatment and they'll say, hey, this is a good one. <laughs> there are others that say it was a string of coincidences because the first culture of the TB bacillus by Robert Koch was in 1882. And then 100 years later, we cultured Helicobacter, 1982. And then in 1884, he just had some presentations and some posters or something in Germany sort of describing Cox postulates, how do you prove a bacteria is a pathogen? You put it in guinea pigs, the guinea pigs get TB, that sort of process. And 100 years later, 18, 1984 was the year that I drank the bacteria, and we called that paper an attempt to fulfil Cox postulates for Helicobacter pylori. So that was 100 years later, and then he won the prize, the Nobel Prize, in 1905. And so people say the committee in Stockholm liked to wait exactly 100 years and award it to us in 2005. So I think that is probably a good reason to wait so long because it was more than 20 years after the culture before we won it. And how do you know you've been nominated? Do people tell you? Well, it is secret. You don't really know. And it's a breach of protocol for people to tell you that they nominated you. But things happen. And people would say, Barry, I heard a rumour from Sweden that a lot of the professors over there think that your discovery is quite important. You know, you might have that kind of a rumour. We'll say, well, hmm, that's good news. The second thing that happens is people that you never heard of or don't really know, but you might know that they're like the editor of Harrison's or something, their secretary might ask you for a copy of your CV. You say, why does, why does this person want a copy of my CV? That's the second thing that happens occasionally. The third thing is happens is that you may win lesser prizes. And Dr. Warren and I won a prize in our first international prize, I suppose, was in Harvard. It was the Warren Alpert Prize. Warren Alpert's an oil baron, I suppose, but a philanthropist who donates a lot to Harvard Medical School. And they... Has a, he has a very good committee for that prize, and some of those people are also the type of people that would nominate for no, Nobel Prizes. And I think on the committee is one or two Nobel laureates. So they chose Dr. Warren and I for the Warren Alpert Prize in 1995. Dr. Warren flew out from Australia. And after that, we won prizes every one or two years in different places similar to that. And quite often you'll find that the jury or the selection committees on those prizes have one or two Nobel laureates. And so when you've won half a dozen different international prizes, then you are getting some exposure. And if nobody objects to winning the, you know, the U.S. prize, like 1995 was the Alaska Prize then, which is regarded as the U.S. Nobel, then there's the Gardner Prize in Canada and Heineken Prize in Holland, etc. 
And when you have several of those prizes under your belt, then the Nobel Committee, I suppose, can look at you and say, well, everyone seems to agree that this is an important discovery and they can study it a bit more carefully. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr Mary Luchars, and I'm speaking with Professor Barry Marshall, who won the 2005 Nobel Prize for his discovery of Helicobacter. He's telling us how to win a Nobel Prize. So, Barry, what were you doing when you found out you'd won? Dr Warren and I used to, uh, we still do, every Nobel week, we started this habit of going down the pub and having a few beers and fish and chips. And this is usually the first Monday in October, and that is the medical Nobel Prize announcement. Unfortunately, in America, they announce it at 2 o'clock US time in the morning. So it happens when you're sleeping. But in Australia, it translates into about 5 p.m. or 5.30 p.m. in the evening. So it's a good time to be down the pub having a beer. And when Dr. Warren retired, I said, Robin, you and I ought to get together at least once a year and have a few beers and reminisce. And so this little tradition started up and went on for several years. So we thought we might win it the first few years. We thought we were candidates. But the years went by and we thought, oh, well, you know, probably never going to happen. But we enjoyed going down the pub together. So we kept doing it. And then we were at the pub and the time had passed because they have to call you on the telephone about an hour before the announcement. And it was almost 5.30 when the announcement was going to be on the radio anyway. And we hadn't been told or anything. And then his, tele- his cell phone rang and they told him over the cell phone that he'd won the Nobel Prize with Dr. Marshall. And so that's how we found out. But the reason that they'd taken so long to call us was because they were calling our home numbers and of course nobody was home. We were all down the pub. <laughs> Your colleague Robin Warren described the win at the time as, in inverted commas, a bloody nuisance. How would you describe it? <laughs> well, it takes away any free time you have. So you straight away have a rather busy extra job, which is potentially more important than the other things you do because you, you're you running an educational process, an ambassador for science in your hometown or your city or your country. And it's important that everybody tolerates Nobel laureates. Pretty much you can do whatever you like. And people will say, well, that's a Nobel laureate. They're allowed to be a bit eccentric. But if you try hard, I think you can get a, get a lot of value for everybody out of a Nobel Prize. You can publicise your area of research. If it's an important thing like peptic ulcer, you know, serious disease, well then you can say if, if you give a few interviews in, in the lay press and on TV, then potentially millions of people around the world are benefited. So you get more bang for your buck once you've won the Nobel Prize. It's a tricky problem to balance your time so you still have some family time and you don't just burn out. So you do need a lot of help, a lot of support just to manage the whole process. So luckily I do have that. And what was it like meeting the King of Sweden? Oh, it was great. Uh, The royal family of Sweden are very, very nice people and I think they create a lot of value for the Swedish culture. And I have to say that winning the Nobel Prize and going to those Nobel ceremonies, there is absolutely nothing like it. And if you could just do that once in your life, it would be worth it. So apart from being nice to Swedish people, being male and coming from a North American background, are there any tips you can give our physician listeners who may be wanting to get themselves nominated for a Nobel? Well, if I could say, think about if you're a young researcher, you want to be, it's nice to be labelled as a young Turk. Okay, so you want to be out there with your discovery and argumentative. 
and that makes makes people pay interest, pay, pay attention to you. But don't create an enemies unnecessarily. The people who I probably made it a bit difficult for, for myself because I used to get quite cross when I was criticised in conferences, so that uh, people could tell there was sort of uh, scientific immaturity there. But you you have to keep a cool head and and argue away on some scientific principles because most of the people who are arguing against you or don't believe you are actually good scientists and the the, the scientific process is that the sceptics have to prove you wrong and as you overcome each one of those as stepping stone towards proving that you are right so eventually they will end up on your side and you do need a lot of help over your career in little things and quite often you're doing some little research project which is not funded it just needs somebody with a with a few brains to give you some good advice or look down a microscope for five minutes in the middle of an afternoon or early in the morning and those sort of things can really help you along your career. So I would say just don't go out of your way to make enemies and most people are, are trying to help you and just accept the, have faith in the process. Do Nobel laureates ever retire, Barry? They don't, no. I met some very nice Nobel laureates who won their Nobel Prizes in the 80s and they're still doing the Nobel laureate circuit, if you like. <laughs> For your ego, I think it's good to be also doing the other normal things, and I do I get a bit of a kick out of seeing patients. I often see the most difficult patients, and uh, you know, if everything else fails, why not send the patient to the Nobel laureate? So I, I can't say my success rate's particularly good at the moment, but it is quite satisfying still getting down to your roots and doing a clinic from time to time. Well, thanks very much, Professor Barry Marshall, for joining me on ReachMD today. We've been finding out how he won the Nobel Prize in Medicine. I'm Dr Mary Lucia, as your host. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening.